Hello, and welcome to Unbelief Dies and this book review. Today I'm reviewing The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. So Mikhail Bulgakov was born in 1891, and he died in 1940 at the age of 49. He was a playwright and an author in his time. Um, it's actually reported that Stalin really enjoyed uh, one of his um, adaptions, his plays, uh, called The Days of the Turbans, and went to see it apparently more than a dozen times. Um, interestingly, it was the fact that Stalin really appreciated Bulgakov's work that meant that Bulgakov was able to continue in that profession uh, during the Soviet years. So this book itself is actually written uh, and set in the 1930s. Um, it wasn't able to be published because it was uh, essentially censored consistently and suppressed. And um, one of the things that Mokhel Bogakov portrays in his book is this author, this gentleman called The Master, who has a novel that he is unable to push forwards and so ends up burning his manuscripts. It's a fascinating kind of um, collaboration between himself and the person that he's writing about, the master, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in due course. Um, there was a censored version of this book released in the 1960s, and then the full version was finally released in 1973. There was a version, a full version, underground uh, for quite a long time, um, but Mikhail Bulgakov never actually saw this book being published during his lifetime. It was his widow who kept it and carried it on and eventually managed to get it published in due course. To great success, I might add as well, it's renowned for being one of the best 20th century Russian novels especially because of its portrayal of Soviet Russia and his critique of the mindset, the attitude and the shallowness of Soviet ideals. Um, the actual book itself is kind of set in three places. I already mentioned it's the 1930s Russia, mainly in Moscow that this book is set. Interestingly, within this space, there is uh, fantasy, there is dare, there is mischievousness. The devil, a gentleman called Voland, actually comes to Russia. Uh, we meet him um, at Patriarch's Pond. He mean, meets two individuals who are part of a literary circle. One is a poet, the other is an author and publisher and lead editor of a, of a magazine, essentially. And these two are discussing uh, whether or not um, Jesus was real, and they're both arguing how atheistically Jesus didn't even exist, and they're trying to improve their writing so that those they're writing to can be reminded again and again of how God, Jesus, this idea of high and mighty, isn't real. Um, the devil arrives and he begins to play tricks and play with their minds and begins to argue for Jesus actually existing. It's a fascinating concept. Essentially, Woland consistently goes into situations like this where individuals are trying to talk about a certain subject and he ends up breaking people to the point where they have to go to a mental hospital. We can come to the mental hospital in due course, but I want to talk about the other two facets that this book runs down. So the second one is essentially the judgment, death and burial of Jesus. So there's an amazing scene, like Pilate really is a central figure for, for this area rather than Jesus as you would usually expect. But within this space, compared to the 1930s, the miraculous doesn't take place. There are allusions to it or hints or pointers potentially, especially towards the end of the novel that the miraculous did happen, but very much is gritty, dark, hard times. Pilate struggling with his position, sitting in Herod's court, having to pass judgment on somebody that he doesn't think he should have to pass judgment on, but he's being forced into that position. And again, we'll come back to that in due course. So I want to get to a, a section that I want to read for you at the very, very end of the video. 
the final section um, is almost like a reimagining of the, the sort of Germanic character Faust. So it's a legend of a character. Um, so this, this idea of this person called Faust is that he makes a pact with the devil uh, at a crossroads and he exchanges his soul uh, for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. That's this idea of Faust. He is this character who is trying to become all-knowing, all-powerful, um, living very sensually and, and trying to get as much pleasure from this life as it is possible to possess. Mikhail Bugakov paints Faust within the character of Woland, who is in Russia in the 1930s, almost to pass judgment. I'll give you a little bit of an idea of what I mean by this. So there's this scene where Voland and his entourage, and he's got a cat who's the size of a small man, walking around, talking, drinking vodka, playing chess, not very well, getting on trams, doing loads of things that you would not expect a cat to be doing but for some reason people seem to balk and be confused but they just accept it and that's okay this is normal uh, he has other individuals as well that make up his retinue who uh, basically cause havoc and mayhem they all do throughout the whole course of their time uh, an example of that is they end up putting on a performance at a theater and Volan says very clearly i'm going to sit and watch and let my entourage do the magic show he's interested in the individuals who claim that Sovietism has enabled them to rejuvenate themselves and live themselves into a more uh, real and full position. But he's not sure. He's seen these people in the past. He's the devil. He's come to Russia to almost condemn and judge and pass a pilot-like sentence on these people. He is going to see whether or not greed and lust and the desire for self is actually more important than this idea of the global good of Mother Russia. He does things like he invites women to come up onto stage and uh, the cat runs around putting new shoes on the ladies, taking the old shoes away, getting rid of the old dresses, putting new dresses on them, helping them to look splendid. And at the very end, clicks his fingers and money falls from the, from the air down to the ground and everyone's grabbing it and snatching it and trying to get hold of this cash. In due course, uh, as they're leaving a few days later, we discover that the cash became nothing but old receipts and recycled bits of paper. And the dresses and the new items of clothing that these people were wearing as they left the theatre suddenly disappear. And they're walking around naked, uh, having lost the original clothes they were wearing and also the glamorous garments they thought they had managed to get at this performance. This entire situation sends a lot of people mad. Wolin goes into literary circles, into the theatre. He meets various individuals trying to get flats and trying to abide time. And we see him beginning to really seep into and snap the the way of the world, I guess. And this really is Bogakov trying to condemn or pass judgment on the arbitrary and difficult nature that somebody would have to go through to actually be able to produce something like a play. If you were a writer at the time, you were writing under Soviet jurisdiction. You had to write Soviet propaganda. You couldn't go around just writing whatever you wanted and releasing it because that isn't Soviet literature. If you wanted to be a free author, you were impoverished, you were broke, you had very little ability to survive. You had to move into a... Uh, a stream which very much fitted with the Soviet agenda and propaganda. We see a character who was at Patriarch's Pond, as I mentioned at the beginning, who witnessed his friend being told that he was going to die, he was going to fall over, and he was going to lose his head. That's what he's told in, in the novel at the very beginning. And we see that this individual, this poet, Ivan, watching his friend end up running away from Woland and falling over, and a tram coming over and cutting off his head. This sends Ivan mad. And the first reading we're going to have now is from a scene where Ivan is talking to the doctor 
in the Assane Asylum. And we actually see quite a few of these characters entering into the Assane Asylum. So I'm going to read to you first of all. So here we see one of those individuals talking to the doctor at the Assane Asylum. Oh no, we will listen very carefully to everything you say, said Stravinsky, seriously and reassuringly. And on no account shall we allow anyone to say you're mad. All right then, listen. Yesterday evening at Patriarch's Ponds, I met a mysterious person who may or may not have been a foreigner, who knew about Belosi's death before it happened, and had met Pontius Pilate. The retinue listens to Ivan, silent and unmoving. Pilate? Is that the Pilate who lived at the time of Jesus Christ? inquired Stravinsky, peering at Ivan. Yes. Aha, said Stravinsky, and this... Bellows is the one who died falling under a tram. Yes, I was there yesterday evening when the tram killed him, and this mysterious character was there too. Pontius Pilate's friend? asked Stravinsky, obviously a man of exceptional intelligence. Exactly, said Ivan, studying Stravinsky. He told us before it happened that Anna had spilt the sunflower seed oil, and that was the very spot where Bellows slipped. How do you like that? Ivan concluded, expecting his story to produce a big effect. But it produced none. Stravinsky simply said, And who is Anna? Silently, disconcerted by the question, Ivan frowned. Anna doesn't matter, he said irritably. God knows who she is. Simply some stupid girl from Sadovia Street. What's important, don't you see, is that he knew about the sunflower seed oil beforehand. Do you follow me? Perfectly, replied Stravinsky seriously, patting the poet's knee. He added, relax and go on. It's a fascinating section of our book. We begin to see this doctor trying to help this individual to overcome their, what he believes to be insanity. But the Ivan is so determined that it's true that it happened. And in due course, Ivan actually meets somebody called the master, the very master from the title of this novel, who is himself an author, who has written a book and is unable to get published, is unable to get anywhere. So he burns the manuscripts in abject horror and shame and humiliation. Ivan and the master have a back and forth and the master is very open to the idea that the devil does actually exist and that this is true. There are other individuals who have begun to come to this sale asylum and have been and seen really strange occurrences within Moscow. It's a really interesting play on Bolgakov's mental stability as he struggled with the realisation that his manuscript, this manuscript, wasn't going to be published in his lifetime. As I mentioned, it came out fully in 1973 and Bolgakov died in 1940. He never saw this being published. I already mentioned it was his widow that pushed it forwards, and he ended up burning a copy of his manuscript as well. He's put himself into this story, in a way, through the master. Um, and we, we meet, in the second part of the book, an individual called Margarita, who is a, uh, a lady who's been having an affair with the master. And she ends up leaving her husband and wanting to give herself fully over to the master. She loves his work. She loves this book that he's written, this book about Pontius Pilate. It's really interesting because we meet the master and he's still insane, 
but the devil manages to work with Margarita. He calls her to be his escort for the evening at this grand ball where they're meeting loads of past um, well-known figures who've died doing horrible deeds. And he grants her one wish, and she desires to save the master, to free him from his insanity and to rejoin herself to him forever. Um, this request is granted, and for the second quote I'm going to read you in a second, what you're seeing is the master has been brought before them, he's been summoned, he's been pulled out of the insane asylum, he's been brought to them, and they're giving him a drink, and as he has a drink, he's slowly regaining his wits as he goes. I'll read from you now from the second part of this book. It was true. The patient's stare was less wild and distraught. Is it really you, Margaret? said the midnight visitor. Yes, it really is, replied Margarita. More, ordered Voland. When the master had drained a second glass, his eyes were full and alive and conscious. That's better, said Voland, with a slight frown. Now we can talk. Who are you? I am no one, replied the master, with a lopsided smile. Where have you just come from? From the madhouse. I'm a mental patient, replied the visitor. Margarita could not bear to hear this and burst into tears again. Then she wiped her eyes and cried, It's terrible, it's terrible. He is the master, monsieur. I warn you, cure him, he's worth it. You realise who I am, don't you? Voland asked. Do you know where you are? I know, answered the master. My next-door neighbour, in the madhouse, is that boy, Ivan Bezdemony. He told me about you. Did he now? replied Voland. I had the pleasure of meeting that young man at Patriarch's Ponds. He nearly drove me mad trying to prove that I don't exist. But you believe in me, I hope. I must, said the visitor, although I would much prefer it if I could regard you as a figment of my own hallucination. Forgive me, added the master, recollecting himself. So there we are. We have this interesting scene where the master has been re-given his consciousness, his sanity. Um, a little bit further on, um, we see Voland very clearly telling the master that manuscripts don't burn, that the ideas continue on, that even though the paper is gone, the story doesn't stop being a story. It's fascinating, and as I already mentioned, the master's entire story is around this idea of Pontius Pilate judging this figure of Jesus, although under a different name. Seeing this figure of Jesus... Being, or being confirmed that Jesus is killed on the cross and then making sure that his body is buried. We will get to that in a moment. I think it'd be good to read a little section, uh, just a bit of description and narrative from um, from the master's work, shall we say. Um, before I do, um, I just want to say that um, if you would like to get a copy of The Master and Margarita, um, one of the ways you can do that is by supporting me on Patreon. Um, if you support me on Patreon, it enables me to continue having these conversations and making these videos and doing these book reviews and doing everything that When Belief Dies stands for. Um, for the first person that does that and then sends me a message with the phrase The Master and Margarita, DM me the message, the Master and Margarita on Patreon once you've signed up over there. Uh, and basically, maybe not just the first person, but whoever does that over the course of the next 30 days from the date that this video goes live, um, I'll put your names into a hat, I'll draw one out, and whoever wins, I'll send you a copy of The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. Um, I'm not sure it'll be precisely this copy because I've written in this copy quite heavily, but I'll send you a copy of the book um, 
for sure. Um, I'd also love to know kind of what books you'd like me to review or read and then review. Uh, where do you want me to go from here? I've got a list of about 15 books I want to work through, but I'm more than happy to add in other books as I go. So as my audience, I'd love to hear from you what books you'd like me to read and review for you on the channel. Um, the last thing to say before we get to the final quote um, of this book, and I give a bit of synopsis before we get there as well, um, but it's just to subscribe to When Belief Dies if you're new here. Um, if you hit the subscribe button and then hit the notification bell afterwards, uh, you'll be reminded whenever we release a video. And if you wouldn't mind giving this video a thumbs up, it really helps to boost the visibility of When Belief Dies and hopefully helps other people to find these book reviews in due course. This book really is a fantastic overview of uh, an individual's mind through hilarity and mischievousness and uh, complexity and these different themes interwoven together as he portrays this narrative. Um, I found it quite hard to read without actually going away and doing research beforehand and trying to understand the time and place, the 1930s in Soviet Russia and what it was like to try and publish during that time or just to try and be a person without having to give in to the Soviet ideals and ways of life. And then reading it and then going away and doing some more research after I've read it just to really re-ground where it was if you're not into those sorts of books which are going to make you have to heavily think and get involved with um it's well worth um not picking this up because it's probably worth doing that for sure um one of the really interesting facts about this book is that individuals keep disappearing throughout it um and it's quite a nice little i guess nods to the fact that during soviet russia during this time many many individuals were being taken and moved and nobody ever heard from them again they were never seen again there are deep veins of horror that go through this book even though it's portrayed in hilarity and genius essentially it's still a very moving and dark tale that's being told it's not simple it's not nice um and you know Mikhail Bulgakov tells his own story in here, in a way as well. We should never read an author fully into this, I'm aware, but um, he expresses himself in his time and his place in this book. Um, and I find that those little gems, those little glimmers to be really, really fascinating. So the final quote before we finish uh, is one of the, the last chapters that we have, um, which is set in the time of Pontius Pilate and Jesus. Um, it's just a descriptive narrative, so the uh, death has happened, um, the body of Christ has been removed from the cross, and... Um, this essentially is the darkening of the skies you'd read in the Gospels, and at least Mikhail Bugakov's retelling of that story. The mist that came from the Mediterranean Sea blotted out the city that Pilate so detested. The suspension bridges connecting the temple with the grim fortresses of Antonia vanished. The murk descended from the sky and drowned the winged gods above the Hippodrome. The crinealated Hasamonia Palace, the bazaars, the caravansia, the alleyways, the pools, Jerusalem, the great city, vanished as though it had never been. The mist devoured everything, frightening every living creature in Jerusalem and its surroundings. The city was engulfed by a strange cloud which had crept over it from the sea towards the end of that day, the fourteenth of the month of Nisan. It had emptied its belly over Mount Golgotha, where the executioners had hurriedly dispatched their victims. It had flowed over the temple of Jerusalem, pouring down in smoky cascades from the mound of the temple and invading the lower city. It had rolled through open windows and driven people indoors, 
from the widening streets, at first it had held back its rain, and only spat lightning, the flame cleaving through the smoke-black vapour, lighting up the great pile of the temple and its glittering, scaly roof. But the flash passed in a moment, and the temple was plunged again into an abyss of darkness. Several times it loomed through the murk to vanish again, and each time its disappearance was accompanied by a noise like the crack of doom. As I've already mentioned, it's well worth spending some time reading this book. Um, I was encouraged afterwards actually to listen to it because the humour comes through more that way. Um, I'm definitely going to do that as well. Being dyslexic sometimes, uh, listening is more helpful. So I'm going to be doing that shortly to kind of make sure it really settles in my mind. But yeah, The Marsha Margarita by Mikhail Bugakov, something that is really interesting that came out of Soviet Russia in the 20th century. depicts a time of horror but also does it in such a a light and refreshing way it's um it is fascinating so yeah well worth checking out thank you once again for watching this book review cheers